Hi, everybody. Andy here. Before this episode, I want to jump in real quick to offer a thank you, actually. So a quick backstory. Matt and I have been looking for someone to sponsor transcripts that's like typed out, you know, what everyone's said on each episode of the show, typed out so you can read it for a long time now. And uh, XYZ Type stepped up. Uh, and I actually have Ben and Jesse from XYZ Type on the line right now. Hello, Ben and Jesse. Hello. Hello. I want to talk a little bit about why I wanted to do transcripts, and then I'm curious to hear more about XYZ Type, obviously, so we can tell everybody about it. And uh, if you stay tuned for this entire little ad, you'll get a free poster in the mail, I'm, I'm led to believe, so that's <laughs> a little carrot for you. But yeah, basically, um, you know, we've wanted transcripts for a while, uh, and the big reason uh, is, frankly, because I think there's a lot of people out there that don't like listening to podcasts, especially not hour-long podcasts with people just talking. And so I think the idea of bringing the content to a new medium is exciting because some people could read the episode where they might have otherwise not listened to it in the first place. Um, another big advantage of this is that it does open up the show to people that can't hear uh, or are hard at hearing. Um, if people can't hear the show, can't listen to it, uh, now they can read it instead, which is nice. Uh, and then the last thing it does for us is it lets us much more easily search the archives of our episodes to find a specific thing we mentioned or figure out where some comment or conversation happened. Uh, and that is where XYZ Type have stepped up. So, uh, Ben or Jesse, why don't you just tell everybody what XYZ Type is? So, we're a new digital type foundry. We just started uh, at the beginning of May and started selling our typefaces online. Uh, it's just the two of us, Ben and me. Jesse used digital again. Uh. I, I was, I was going to ask about that. So, you said a digital type foundry. What is the distinction? I mean, obviously, you're not making lead type, but... Uh... But what else beyond that? Everyone's a digital type foundry these days, but it just always seems funny to say type foundry. And people who aren't in the industry always say, oh, so you cast metal or whatever. So, Do you actually get that at parties and stuff? They're like, ooh, yes. you're making lead type? Occasionally. Well, yeah. not really type, but people are like, oh, you have a forage? And I'm like, mm, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm not that exciting. I have a screen. I know that a lot of designers feel like there's just a billion million options of places you can buy fonts from out there. So uh, wh- why is it worth checking out your website specifically? What, what, what are different about your products from somebody else's? Well, I think that what uh, sets us apart, because there are so many type foundries out there, what sets us apart, it really is the specific products that we have to offer. So in terms of licensing, I guess one thing that does uh, make us different or stand out um, is if you buy a desktop font, um, it includes an ebook license for whatever you want to do. If you were printing a book, you could buy one one copy of the typeface, design the book, send it to the printer. Um, we don't think it's any different than an ebook these days. So an ebook license is included in the desktop license. Our web font license is permanent, so you buy it once um, for your site. We we actually we have something a little different, I think, than most people for. Their web fonts, um, our base web font license, we kind of realize that people have small sites, portfolio sites, maybe you, you want export for your wedding website. So uh, we have a really small, uh, low traffic, cheap web font license for small personal sites. Um, and then, of course, if you are a CNN and decide to use export for something, we have a license for you. But we try and cover a, a broad range of usages. Um, so you don't have to pay more than you need to pay. Check out xyztype.com to see their current offerings. Can you give us a hint at what's coming down the line? What are some of the things you have in the works right now? Uh, So we've already released Aglet Slab that I designed. And uh, over the past few weeks, I've been uh, really buckling down and working on the Aglet Sans companion to that. Uh, And that's been an interesting process, just figuring out what Aglet Sans wants to be uh, without just lopping off the serifs of Aglet Slab and 
letting it have its own voice. Uh, so that's one thing. Ben has another exciting thing in the works. You want to talk so about the, that? the yeah the um, the interface font that the website uses is a typeface called grep, um, which I've been cooking on for a long time. It initially started as a pitch for um, an online payment services company. Um, so it was part of a pitch that didn't that didn't make it. Um, and so that's getting fleshed out, and that's a screen font designed for small sizes and user interfaces. I, and of course, we have a geometric sans as well, because every oh. foundry has to have their geometric sans. Yeah. Uh, but that's another What's one. What's going to be that, quirky about yours? Well, it's uh, you know, it's always that trick of finding something that's quirky but not too quirky, and it's yeah, exactly. not something that I would have tried to do. But I actually had a client come to me with specific reference material. It was. Um, some architectural detailing in existing in an existing building, and uh, they're actually renovating that building and wanted a new typeface that matched what was there. So I uh, worked up this typeface for them that's inspired by that. If you go to our website xyztype.com, um, we have free trials of all our faces. It's a limited character set, but oh, it's yeah. there for you uh, if you're a student and you need something for a poster project. Um, it's got most of what you need. If you're an agency and you want to try something out for a pitch, it's there for you to use. So it's on every single page. You just go up to um, you go up to free trial. Give us your email address and your name. If it's your name or not, we won't know. But you need to put your real email address in. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you click on uh, subscribing to our newsletter. We don't send them very often, but you'll find out when our new fonts come out. And then you'll get a link to our entire collection um, as free trial fonts a really great thing to offer yeah well i think it's it's no secret in the industry that uh people often do borrow a font from someone to try it out in a pitch or something and um we you know we're aware of that so we'd rather take the friction away and give you a legal way to uh use our fonts to sell it to the client so that we can hopefully um, get you on the hook to actually uh buy it so I heard mention of a free poster for people if they <laughs> emailed a secret code to the correct secret address. Uh, do you want to spoil that now? <laughs> you make it sound more secret than it actually is. If you email your address to poster at xyztype.com. And the secret password, which is poster. Poster. <laughs> we were going to mail you a poster, so the secret code word is Poster. If I send my address to, like, sandwich at xyztype.com, you, like, send me a nice hoagie or something? You can try it and see. I, I don't know what will happen, actually. So if you want to find us on uh, Twitter, we're xyz underscore type. Uh, the same on Instagram. And then on Facebook, it's xyztype, one word. What more could you ask for? Free trials of all of their families, sensible licensing, and even a free poster. So visit xyztype.com, check out their offerings today, and uh, get that sweet free stuff. Ben, (laughs) Jesse, thank you both so much. I could not be more excited to finally be bringing transcripts to the show, and I can't think of a better partner than XYZ Type. With that, here's the show. You are listening to Working File, a podcast about design practice and its relationship with the world. My name is Andy Mangold. And I'm Matt McInerney. On this episode, we're joined by Kara Haupt and Lola Landikich to answer your questions. Apologies to the thousands and thousands of questions we won't get to. Uh, We'll try our best.
How's everyone doing tonight? Lola and Kara, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here, as yeah, always. <laughs> so happy to be here. Matt, you said you're, you're getting over a little bit of illness. Yeah, but I was going to try to trick everybody into thinking I wasn't sick. So if you didn't catch it, then I'm not sick. Who cares? I don't, I don't think you got any extra weird frogginess in your voice. I think you're, I think you're totally normal. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> this is a very special episode. By very special, I mean just different than other episodes. But if I say special, I'll get you excited about it. Which is that we're answering listener questions this episode. So we spent the past week polling people on Twitter and through other formats for various questions they might have for us to answer. And uh, we're going to just do that. And we'll dive right in. We got, we got thousands and thousands of questions. And I think we'll pick the top 1% of questions yeah, exactly. to answer. We didn't get, I would say, not an overwhelming number of questions. But the questions we did get, I thought, were very thoughtful, which I appreciated. And, uh, you know, I think maybe people, we haven't done a Q&A episode before. Maybe people didn't know what to expect. Maybe once they hear us answering questions, it'll dawn on them, oh, that could be my question. And they'll have all kinds mm-hmm. of questions for us to do. But, I uh, think that's just a reflection of our audience. Very few people listen to us, but we really like the people that do. Is that fair? <laughs> Quality over quantity. That's the number one way to monetize content these days, right? You don't that's have to worry how you about... sell to sponsors. Be like, there are at least two people who listen, but they really like Casper mattresses. What do you think, Casper? Yeah. <laughs> how would you like to reach the two most very genuinely kind people, <laughs> very nice <laughs> listeners that we have? Um, let's just dive right in. And uh, I'm not going to direct these at anybody. So if you feel like you have something to say, just pipe up and say a thing. Uh, we're going to start off with a nice, easy one. Well, not easy, a short one, I will say. Uh, this comes to us from Christina Allen on Twitter. Thank you, Christina Allen, at Christina Allen. And she says, on a team, what do you look for in a leader slash design director? What is the most helpful thing they have done to help your team succeed? Well, I'll, I'll answer what I think What I think the best thing is. Uh, I like, I, I think the best kind of leader in that sense is someone who kind of like, kind of keeps, keeps things moving forward, is uh, efficient about kind of like making sure everyone is on task and on schedule, uh, but doesn't kind of reveal the stresses and like any sort of disasters uh, and kind of disturb the surface, if that makes sense. Like, like a shock absorber. Yeah. Like basically like they don't, they don't tell you every anxiety the client has ever had if you're, if it's kind of a leader or project manager role. Um, but they make sure you get things done on time. They're not, but they're not kind of frantically running in the room and be like, oh my God, guess what just happened? We have to change everything. Somewhere, somewhere in there. I appreciate that kind of thing. Or at least that's, that's what I try to do myself if I'm in that position. Is there a difference between like a design director and like your immediate manager? I mean, I'm sure there are in certain type of organizations, um, but I think there's like certainly like good signs of a manager of like, um, you know, consistent check-ins and, um, you know, one-on-ones that are really thoughtful and prepared and, you know, leaders that are really interested and excited in your personal growth and what you can add to the team. So I would say that um, is a a really big sign of a of a good design director a good manager um and i think also from like a design perspective um the last design director that i had um was a design director on the hillary campaign jennifer kynan um and she just had a lot of experience um working on a brand um because that's what she'd been doing for you know like 20 years and so i think um that i always just felt like it was in really good hands and really good experienced hands. And I think, um, I think years of experience also make like my comfort in a design director, um, more quality. Um, so I feel like those are the things that I look for. Um, and also just someone that in the, for the most part is, you know, inspirational and, 
encouraging. I guess I kind of just assumed they would have experience, but I guess that's not always the case, huh? Well, I think there's a difference between, like, yeah, like, I mean, I'm a young person, so I'm not going to, like, on young people, but, like, there is a difference between, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, four years of experience being in a, you know, a high leadership position and then, you know, somebody that's been doing it for, like, 15 or 20 years, um, which I I think I valued after having, like, worked with, you know, a, a wide range of people. Um, with different experience sets, but maybe that is a given. Do you think some people are better natural leaders, or that just is leader is also just an experience thing, like pretty much everything else? I think there probably are natural leaders. I mean, I feel like we've all like probably been managed by someone who like wasn't naturally good at managing or wasn't interested in being a good manager. And I think that I don't know if that's a natural inclination as it is like a, a natural enjoyment of something or an interest in something. So I think that makes a difference. Yeah. And, I, you know, I would think I would agree based on, you know, Matt's comments and Kara's comments. Um, I think enthusiasm and keeping the energy up in a project goes a really long way. Um, and I guess for me, what I really appreciate in, in a leader is um, when they give you a sense of trust in your in you as let's say like maybe if you're subordinate to them or if you're like a member of their team, um, if they trust you and they take an interest in your work and then if they allow you to trust them and sort of let them have a story and, you know, they're more than just a figurehead, they allow you to kind of get to know them and you can actually depend on each other. Uh, in my mind, that's, that's a really great leadership trait. Andy, where did we start with this question? Did we say design leader or manager? I can't even remember what the phrase was. Specifically both. It was leader slash design director. I scrolled up and you can just cut that little thing where I stretched that word out. So it sounds totally natural. Yeah, the original question was leader (laughs) slash design director. And in my experience, you know, I found that uh, sometimes there are people that are working under me that are in many ways, I would say, like more talented designers than me, right? Like the things they sit down and kind of like come up with out of their little brains and hands are like really impressive things that I would be thrilled if I made, but you know, I haven't made. Uh, So I think that one of the things I've noticed is that the thing that I can do that as having a little bit of experience, you know, doing management that I noticed that a lot of younger designers maybe can't do is like that translation between the client and what the thing that we actually should make is, which, you know, we work in consulting, so I'm not at a in-house place where we're working on the same brand for 20 years, something like that. So the needs are always coming from the client in our situation. And I found that if we have, you know, a junior designer in a meeting with myself and, you know, the clients, and we talk about something, we come out of that meeting, uh, our takeaways will oftentimes be very different. Like, they're like, well, well, they said they like this, so we should do that. And I'm like, well, actually, you know, they said this is what they wanted. But really what that means is that they feel like X is lacking. And I can't think of a good example right now, which is a shame. But uh, oftentimes, you know, the things people say or the way they describe things are, you know, little indicators of a deeper thing. And if you solve that deeper thing in a different way, you can sometimes do something more interesting and better than if you just kind of listened to what they said and kind of took it literally. So I find that that translating is something that uh, is, has been important for me, at least in my role. And I imagine it's probably similar if you work at a big company, you're probably translating the corporate vision or you're translating, you know, the limitations of production in some way uh more so than like whatever a client says but that translation has been important for me at least in uh in my career yeah well i think it's i've i've found it to be like uh moving from just literally doing what the client says to like maybe understanding why they're frustrated or anxious or something about a problem and then speaking to that 
uh, which usually works a lot better than just being like, eh, I did the one thing. And then you're like, well, that didn't solve the problem I thought it was going to, but that's not really their job. That's more your job. Yeah. And it gets self-conscious sometimes because it sounds, when I describe it out loud, I feel like I'm describing some kind of like BS, like vision-making thought leadership where like I'm just saying, I'm really good at listening to what they're saying and then like doing some little mental trickery and magic and coming up with like a good prompt for us to work towards. But uh, even though I feel self-conscious about it, I do genuinely feel like that's one of the things I bring to the table is that I can listen to what someone is saying and figure out and kind of get to the root of what the real the real issue is maybe more quickly than other people can. I think it's just a matter of experience. I don't know if there's anything natural there, but, you know, I've been doing this for six years professionally now, more, you know, more kind of casually and on the side as a freelancer. And I think just with time comes, you hear things differently uh, than what you do when you first start. I feel like a less pretentious way of saying that is just people don't always say exactly what they mean, or sometimes they don't know how to say what they mean, which is, to, I mean, you yeah. just learn to expect that. Communication's hard. All right. Uh, I want to move on to a little more involved question, a little longer one. This one comes to us from Stephanie Olson. Thank you, Stephanie, for sending this in. And uh, she says, I recently had an interview where I got really weird feedback for using creative staffing agencies. The creative director went on a tirade against them, called them soul-sucking leeches who are choking our industry. God. Said I was duped into their scheme, and it was in my best interest professionally to not use them. So the question is, are their creative staffing agencies really a problem in our industry? And was this guy an anomaly, or do you know people who feel this way? Uh, and basically asking us about our experience and perspective on creative staffing agencies. And I have to say, uh, I have never worked with an agency like this in design specifically. Uh, and part of that might be that I'm in Baltimore, which is a smaller market for this kind of work. I, I know these kind of things exist in New York and other places, but I've never heard of anyone here in Baltimore, and I've never kind of had a direct experience with them. Um, has anybody else done anything with the creative staffing agency? I have not personally, no. I, when I was looking for a job right out of school and like right when I moved to New York City, I applied to a whole bunch of them. And like I had a couple like initial phone calls or initial meetings with them. And I think I got offered like to go in for one interview, but I didn't take it because it was like a horrible fit. So I like didn't have anything come of um, me pursuing that. I know a lot of people that like have great success with the those agencies, especially in like l larger markets, LA, New York. Um, but my first reaction to that kind of situation that was described is uh, this person holds a personal vendetta. Like clearly they've mm -hmm. had a terrible experience and it has colored the entire industry for them. Uh, so that would be my response to that. Uh, they could just be an elite jerk. They might not have had a horrible experience. You never know. <laughs> well, the, the other thing that I've heard is like, you know, one thing that can be difficult is then if you, for example, you work with uh, like a creative agency, finds you a position with another like placement and, you know, they get a cut of your fee and you work for them for, let's say, three months. Um, if the company then wants to take you on, they kind of have to like buy you out of the creative agency. And I can see how that would be a problem. You know? Yeah. Like it would like dissuade them from hiring people as full timers, right? Yeah. Well, I've um, also heard situations where I, I guess one question is: Are we make? Are we? Is there any difference between a creative staffing agency and a recruiter that hires for creative jobs? Whatever is that exactly the same thing, or is there some difference in connotation? Yeah, I feel like there's just so many different models that it's hard to speak about it so generally. Because I've I know that I've I've heard of recruiters that will do I mean the staffing agency it does the same thing right they will take a cut of the job that you would have other you would have otherwise got if you'd gotten it directly which makes sense I get that 
Um, but I've also heard it where even if it's if it's like a recruiter looking for a full time job, where they would take a cut of your salary, uh, and somehow that seems grosser to me. I don't know why it's the same principle, but it seems very weird, um, which sounds like very similar thing to what you were just describing. I also just think like anybody who's necessarily looking down on you for you know having to hustle, having to find work where you can, isn't really going to be the leader that you may be looking for you know like it's a hard economy out there yeah, way to tie it together lola nice i like that transition that was good <laughs> well it's true because it's like you know even if let's say you have to uh you know bust tables in between finding your dream design gig or anything uh, like being practical like that shouldn't be something that you get shamed for you know like you have to work we all have to pay our bills so for creative agencies the best way you can do that why not you know like you're not trying to devalue anything you're trying to work yeah. Yeah. I actually yeah. feel really strongly about that. I, I, the more I've learned about how people get work and find work and whatever, like, uh, I've never met anybody who hasn't at some point struggled with trying to pay the bills, whether they run an agency or they're doing freelance work or whatever, even like really prestigious places, uh, yeah. have struggled with that. So it just, I, I mean, it makes me feel better about life. Cause I'm like, Oh, I'm always worried about that kind of stuff. Like where, where does the next job come from? Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to be too much of a jerk about it because everybody goes through their ups and downs and uh, I have a really hard time looking down on anyone trying to find work any way they can, especially in, in a field where we do such a specific thing, right? Yeah. And, and Stephanie didn't ask this question explicitly, but I will say that uh, my skin definitely crawled a little bit at the idea of somebody going on a tirade and telling you that you were duped by someone's scheme during an interview, which seems totally inappropriate. So... Uh, even though you didn't ask, I would say don't work for this person. He seems like a total jerk. Uh, but Yeah, not steady. But to your second question of, is this person an anomaly or do we know people that feel this way? I don't know people that feel this way about this specific issue, but I definitely know people who have a thing they feel a way about and they are willing to, uh, somebody they first just met, they're willing to, in an interview, explain why they think their position on something is objectively correct and this person needs to change their life plan to better align with their particular values. Which is, uh, I don't know, I, I can't support that, really. <laughs> Especially yeah. in an interview context, when there's like that power differential. Like, I, I know how, in, how seriously people take something you say in something like an interview context, right? When you are, you know, frankly, very vulnerable. You're in a place where you're looking for employment. Uh, you're trying to get a job somewhere, and you're interviewing with somebody who, you know, presumably would be your superior at whatever job you're going to get. Uh, that's a situation that, I don't know, this person seems like maybe they're kind of abusing in, by kind of just spouting their spouting their particular opinions. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I think uh, it makes sense. Like, I can understand that opinion and all things being equal, or like, when all options are on the table, like, I would much rather work with someone directly than through a uh, middleman, right? So, like, it make, that opinion makes sense. I get it. I agree with it. It's just more about, it's like how forceful about it and how judgmental do you want to be about it, right? Yeah, and I'm not sure I would say that they're soul-sucking leeches who are choking our industry, which seems to be <laughs> the words this person used. It is so, very I mean, extreme. <laughs> my, my thoughts are that if there is a agency that is providing something other than literally just, you know, connecting the dots, right? If, if they have a framework for how they work, right? If they figured out a really interesting way to build that's novel and it makes sense and they maybe do some of the work to like you know, do some of the accounting in between and maybe they offer you some sort of protections as an employee to make sure that if you, you know, lose this job through this person, they're going to get you placed somewhere quickly afterwards. Like if they are providing some additional service other than literally just saying this person needs somebody that has the creative suite on their computer and here's somebody that knows how to work Photoshop and just kind of put them together. 
then I can see the value of it more. I'm sure there are agencies that exist that are literally just, you know, playing that middle role and just connecting people and taking money and providing no real value to either side other than making not having to go onto the internet to find an employee or an employer. Uh, I, I will say that it seems to me like the longer that we live in a world that is dominated by the internet, the more it seems like it'd be difficult to run a agency like this weird, you know, kind of just offering this like middle connection, connective tissue. Um, I feel like in other industries, it's kind of been waning too. Like when I, when I graduated, I know that pretty much every illustrator in the year I graduated, like the goal was you got to get a rep. Uh, and, the, and the illustration industry works differently than, you know, graphic design. Uh, yeah. There's not many full-time in-house illustrators. You're getting, you know, individual gigs to, you know, do a big illustration for a publication or to, you know, do some sort of editorial piece. And so like getting a rep was like what you did as an illustrator. And from talking to some students now that are graduating, it seems like that's an option, but it's not the only thing you do. It's easier now just to like kind of find work on your own. And I would have to guess, given the trend of technology and the communication age, that that will just continue to get easier to do without that sort of middle, middle person. Yeah, man, record labels are dead. <laughs> uh, and therefore, so is making money off of music. Whoops. <laughs> oh, uh, but I would, I mean, I would say like if, uh, I would be interested to know if any of our listeners have some very specific experience or there's some like universal truth we're missing here, but I, it seems like just an extreme opinion, right? Yeah. I mean, it'd be nicer yeah. to have, it'd be nicer to have a really condensed, like clean cut opinion, but I think the answer is just like everything else. It's a uh, kind of a gray area and there's probably good ones and bad ones. And anybody that is going to talk your ear off about how great their opinions are in an interview, maybe not the person you should be uh, spending your time with. I would also say, like, if this person made you feel really uncomfortable in the interview while this, like, tirade was happening, that should be another clue for you. This, th- that's not the only time that ever happens. Yeah. yeah. There will probably be more tirades in this particular creative director's future, I would have to guess. Um, all right. Did we Next. Next, move it on. <laughs> right, right. I hope Stephanie feels supported and able to go on to either find a better job or... Uh, Either maybe tell a person to shove it. Uh, I don't know. So uh, this question comes to us through Twitter from Yendrik Kostecki. And uh, they ask, how is design changing as consumers of creative content are more empowered than ever before, i.e. skipping titles, filtering content, blocking ads, etc.? Um, is this something that has come up in any of your work? The idea that these people are people more expect to be able to kind of control their experience than in, in past times? Uh, certainly for me, uh, and, and our work with Art of the Title, um, mostly in terms of, um, I think, designers' anxiety. Um, I, but also, like, I think audiences are, are happy for it. I know that, like, we monitor a lot of, like, certain keywords and conversations on Twitter, and because, you know, Art of the Title is dedicated to title sequences, we try to keep up with all the conversations that people are having about titles, especially, you know, when they're watching a show they're constantly talking about their favorite title sequences and like, you know, Teen Wolf, people are obsessed with Teen Wolf and its titles every time it changes or like American Horror Story and stuff like that. And uh, so they're constantly talking about what they like. And then they're also constantly talking about what they don't like. And people like a lot of people get really bored having to watch a title sequence over and over again when they're binge watching. And so I think one of the reasons Netflix introduced this like skip titles button is for that reason, you know, because the medium has changed so much that now people are binge watching and they're watching in a way they never used to watch before. So, you know, if you're watching like three, four, five episodes in a row, you're already heavily in the mode that the title sequence is supposed to set up, right? Like 
it's supposed to help you segue into the world of the show. But if you're watching six episodes in a row, seeing the titles over and over actually you're in. does the opposite, right? Like it breaks you out of that world. Uh, so I like, I get it for binge watchers being able to skip titles makes a lot of sense. Um, but then people who don't binge watch, you know, watch an episode or two, they're probably not looking to skip anything. So like the button isn't really going to like encourage this kind of behavior. I don't think like they need that segue that the titles provide. If you're sitting down after a long day at work and you just want to watch one episode of Buffy as I do, like you want to watch that title <laughs> sequence, you know? Um, but one thing that like, um, title designers have been talking to us about is that like it makes them really anxious because we're in this what people call like, like a golden era of title design because it's a golden era of of tv right um and so they worry that like any dip in that viewership will reflect the budgets um and so like you know the average budget for a tv title sequence is like 30 grand right uh something like true detective was an outliner outlier right that was like 60 grand and took a year to do um so they're afraid like a lot of designers are a little anxious that like any dip in viewership of people watching titles will amount to like networks and stuff dropping the budgets into that and Mm -hmm. so they'll get less work and i have noticed it hillary was watching uh the new girl on netflix and i noticed i don't know if this was a thing they did specifically for netflix but when she was watching it like the episode had like a four second opening like it had this like abbreviated title sequence that it did at the beginning that was just like a little kind of like stinger uh that it injected instead of like the full what i presume is like a 15 or 30 second intro that i would imagine would happen on network television which i thought was interesting response to like the medium right like they still wanted to get something in there they still wanted to put some people's names on the screen they legally had to but they recognized that people didn't want to sit through a 30 second intro if they were you know chaining shows back to back yeah, and that, I mean, that used to happen all the time on TV as well, especially in the 90s. You'd have, like, the first few episodes would tell you the whole backstory you need for the show, but then, you know, later in the first season or in the second season, it would be totally truncated, right? Because you don't need all that setup. You're already invested. Um, this is something I think about more abstractly in the sense that the arc of most things tends to be, at least in, like, the modern, like era of communication tends to be you go from less control to greater control, right? You know, I think about the web design trends from 10 years ago when, you know, people had intro pages and flash websites and like a website oh, was, like was you kind best. of sat down and it was just like, <laughs> you know, 20 seconds of something would happen before you could click oh, on a link. Oh, it was such a beautiful time. Uh, it, it's funny. Uh, there are some, there are some appealing things about it. You know, I, I, I kind of, I get the nostalgia, but you know, over time, I think people have realized that in almost every case, if you have the technical ability to, it's better for consumers and therefore better for creators to just give people the choice to experience the thing however they want to experience it. Um, this is not, this is of course not including things like, you know, ads, like ad blockers. That's not really a choice you want to give people because that's how you're running a particular, you know, website. It's your revenue model for, you know, certain things. But in general, I think that the more control you give people, the better. And it actually just makes our jobs harder, right? As designers in a lot of, like, as product designers or whatever, it makes our jobs more difficult because you're not just saying, well, people are going to do this. This is the one thing they're going to do. And we're going to kind of lead them on this golden path. And that's the only way to do it. We're more and more empowering people to to like think more and skip around and figure out what it is they want and get to it more quickly, which is a more challenging thing to do, uh, which I find exciting, but uh, does make things more complicated when you're doing something that should be simple, but actually you're like, well, what if people want to skip this or jump right to this section? Or if they have this exact need and they want to get there as quickly as possible, 
Uh, and it kind of, in some ways, like is the source of all of the whole industry of product design, right? The whole wireframe thing is because we're giving people choices and that uh, that's extrapolated out to all different parts of the industry. I, you know, I think you can even go further and just say, like, I think uh, it doesn't even have to apply to product design. It could apply to any sort of graphic design you want because it's, it's about like people paying more attention, people having more opinions about this stuff. Uh, and that makes it its way into the work you actually do. Like, I think you can design a, a logo and identity, and the fact that more people are aware of it and have opinions is going to affect the way you design it, right? Um, I think if you, if you, I, I think you, we can probably see it pretty easily in the past, like, 10 years of logo design and, like, the amount of people that will react to a uh, big brand changing a logo, right? Yeah. And even, like, basic typographic hierarchy is a type of choice giving, right? You're saying, if you only want to be here for two seconds, here's the big thing, read that. And if you want to yeah. read a little bit more, here's your next level. Oh, and if you're really invested and you care about everything, then read this whole thing, top to bottom, read all those tiny text and captions, like that's already breaking that information in sort of a way to make choices. So I don't know if there's anything fundamentally different about the practice, given that we have things like skipping ads and content filters and ad blockers now and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think it's just that uh, the same skills you have to apply to maybe a slightly broader scope than before. Kara, um, I'm curious. So you work at The New Yorker. Do you talk about ad blockers at all in the work you're doing? Is that a consideration of any of your work or is that something that gets discussed elsewhere? Um, it really doesn't affect mine because I'm just art directing um, artwork that accompanies the articles. So mm -hmm. um, my priority, yeah, it definitely isn't on ads. I know that is definitely a conversation that happens a lot. And, um, you know, working through redesigns of the website and there's always, you know, different shifting priorities um, yeah. from, you know, everyone who wants to experience the website and, um, you know, a priority of, of making money, um, which is important. And so, um, yeah, I think that conversation exists, but I don't think I'm a part of it. Which sure. uh, I guess is kind of nice, but <laughs> no, it does sound nice. <laughs> but so I don't have to worry I guess about that. My uh, paycheck does depend on that, so maybe I should have more anxiety about it. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Most people still don't know how to work a regular internet browser. It's gonna be a long time for people before the average person knows how to really work a, an ad blocker. Um, so I, I am curious, though. So you're working on, you know, creative directing the artwork and things that accompany the articles. When you're doing that, is it, and forgive me, this is just a dumb question, but are you saying, oh, this thing is something we want people to like spend time on? We want to like draw people's attention with this. Or are you saying, well, you know, the article is really the main thing we're trying to draw people's attention to. And this is kind of a supporting thing. Like how much do you think about how much you're drawing attention away from the content by adding visuals? I think f for me, I, I don't think I've ever been like worried that the art is going to overshadow the work just because I, I or the you know written work because the written work is so high quality I think my priority always is to make something that is as clickable and interesting because I want people to get into the article um and I also of course want people to stay with it um and so I think the more interesting things that I can we can add to um an article whether that's you know really great supporting imagery throughout the piece or um you know building a different kind of page layout experience for the type of of content it is so i don't think i i don't i think my priority is making the art as best it can be to help support the art support the written content um and i don't really see them as competing with each other sure makes sense um anything else on this question of design changing in the age of people being empowered to make choices 
Well, I think, it, yeah, everyone's experience is becoming more efficient, but I feel like it's losing a little bit of that, like, fun experimental discoverability that we used to have. I mean, I know I'm very nostalgic about the early 2000s and, like, early internet. Yeah, you like Flash websites. You're a sicko. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say I like Flash websites, R.I.P. Flash, uh, but... I appreciated the time in which it all existed, you know, together in the, this weird mishmash universe um, where you, mm-hmm. you know, you could, like in the net, you could click on a weird pie symbol and everything would change on your screen, you know, and it was like, I don't know, the web was just a lot more fun. People would redesign their sites <laughs> constantly, you know, and you never knew what to expect. And now it's like, cool, all the links are very obvious. Great. <laughs> yeah, and I think like discovery is probably maybe not as a organic as it used to be. I mean, probably particularly for like the kind of work that I'm doing. I feel like everybody really has their, um, you know, their feeds curated to the experience they want to. And so the, the challenge now is that, you know, people follow the publications they like, or they follow people that post the similar things to what they're interested in. And so I think like that is a challenge for me to think of like bringing in new audiences, particularly something like the New Yorker, which has kind of a specific audience and a specific vision. And I I think like finding ways to use aesthetic to um, capture that kind of attention is more of a hyper priority now that things can be really curated. So I feel like that's a little bit, I think that's changing and will keep on changing. Yeah. Actually, the question I sometimes ask myself when I'm designing a product or some whatever online experience is like, how would I get me to use this? And that's a really hard It's a high bar. Answer. You're stubborn. Like, you're like, man, I am a jerk. Uh, it's just really, it's really hard to, to picture a world where you like change your own habits to do something. Um, so it's hard to, it, it can be really hard to design that and like genuinely think you're going to change someone's behavior. Yeah, I mean, if you can get yourself to use something, that is a high bar. I think, I think mm-hmm. you'll, I think you'll, that'd be a, a tremendous accomplishment if you could pull that off. Yeah, I don't know. I think about, like, I think this question, I, I'm interested in more the way that the age of consumer control is changing the work itself. And I don't think of design in most situations as the work itself. I think of it as the frame of the work. And so really what we're doing is we're the ones giving the people the choice, right? We're the ones sitting in the meeting and saying, well, we technically can give them this button that says skip title sequence. Do we want to do that? And we talk mm-hmm. about why we should or shouldn't. Uh, and then it seems like most people are landing on, well, we probably should just give them the choice. Uh, and I'm interested in what's happening to title designers and to people that are writing articles for the web and people that are making music and people that are composing these things. Because I do think that uh, in this you know, age of you know, perfect filtering for exactly the thing that you like and nothing else and you know, nothing... Nothing you didn't see got specifically. Uh, I imagine that that does change the sort of context in which things are created. I do wonder if we like create this kind of spiraling effect, though, of like, uh, oh, we as designers know people only read a certain amount, so we're going to only show a certain amount, and then you start writing for that, and then people have even less attention span, and then so on and so forth down the rabbit hole until we are where we are now, and everything's a nightmare. But um, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this this touches on a little bit like the whole you know designing for choice giving people like the choice to like see things or not, you know, if people know something is an ad, they oftentimes will kind of reject it out of hand because it's not an ad. And, you know, I think one serious problem we have right now with a lot of websites, (laughs) Facebook, is (laughs) that they conceal what things that are actually ads and make them look like, oh, they're just like fun posts that you can like 
check out. And they have you know, no editorial voice there, just whoever pays for those things. And it's a great way to disseminate a lot of bad information if you want to, because you just put it in a like misleadingly photoshopped, you know, viral meme on Facebook, uh, and then it kind of gets absorbed through things. That feels like a diversion, though. But even not just how real content is displayed, like think of think of just in a very short period of time, like the difference between seeing like a card or like uh, a summary post on Facebook and Twitter versus seeing like it an article in Google Reader, like just the experience of subscribing to something. Ugh, talk about nostalgia. Like, R.I.P. Google Reader. <laughs> Jeez. Like you where, you where you actually see an article versus you just see like a, the card on Twitter and you're like, oh, it has a headline, it has a little image. And then maybe I don't even read it. Maybe that's what I see. And then maybe I go to lunch and talk about this article I read, even though I just saw the Twitter card for it. <laughs> <sighs> That's a thing people do. All right. Uh, let's move on. I think I have one like other question left that I want to... There's one kind of question that a couple people got at from different angles that I want to kind of finish on. So uh, let's do this other question first. Uh, this question comes to us from Stefan in Serbia. I don't know how to pronounce your last name, Stefan. Again, I'm very sorry. Um, he asks... I was wondering what your opinion is on the influence of classical graphic design education on today's interface designers. When I say education, I don't mean only art school. I mean anyone who knows their graphic design history and fundamentals. I'm noticing that more often than not, talented young UI designers of today don't pay much mind to it. When someone mentions a grid, their first association is a CSS framework. Without this knowledge, are they missing out on anything? Would they, be, would they produce better or meaningful... Or, would they produce better or more meaningful work if they had it? On the other hand, are they perhaps better off without the burden of graphic design's legacy and its limitations, going headfirst into designing for screens? So that's a question that comes to us from Stefan. Who's got thoughts? Uh, I think it's a it's a really nice, like rosy, naive notion to think that you are outside of the framework. Mm-hmm. You are never outside of that framework. You, <laughs> uh, by using these tools, like all of the things you are designing on, right? This computer, the actual, like tools that you're using, the software, everything that you're using has been created by someone, designed by someone, uh, with a specific intent. And so, like, you're never outside of the history of graphic design. Like, you are living and breathing yeah. it, especially if you're a designer. Not just because maybe you don't know who, like, Joseph Mueller-Brockman is. You know, it doesn't... Maybe you can't name all the Swiss men, but, like, <laughs> you're still working within what they created, right? So, like, there's no way you can get out of it. And there's actually no way... I, I was talking about this with someone the other day, and I don't know, I think, Andy, you and I have talked about this, but it's like, how do you create uh, graphic design without, like, working within the legacy of existing graphic design? Like, all we know of design is what has been taught to us. The legends that we know, the heroes that we have, you know, are the, the language that we have to make this work. Yeah, I think that's a great point, especially what you said about tools. Uh, I think people take for granted that, you know, if you just open InDesign, the number of things that are assumed about what you're doing and that happen for you essentially automatically that, you know, otherwise would have had to happen manually or, you know, you're just basically, you know, the tool itself is an extension of the culture and of the history, which is a really, really relevant point uh, to kind of reiterate. But uh, but yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree completely. And I don't think you can operate outside of that history. And yes, maybe you don't know the, you know, details of this special poster that was designed for this symphony hall by this white man or whatever. Uh, but I, I think, you know, to answer the, the last question, which was, are you better off without the burden of that legacy? Um, not only can you not have the burden of that legacy, but I don't think you're ever better off without information, right? Like, if you can have more information, 
great. You don't have to use it in a particular way. I don't think you're, you're sullied or ruined in any way by having more context for something. Uh, so I think it's more just a matter of how you use that. Uh, and, and to your point, Lola, like I think the only way you can even attempt to make work that is outside of the sort of history that we're describing is to like intentionally make something that adopts a different visual history, right? Like you can make some death metal logos and sure, that doesn't have a whole lot to do with, you know, Swiss graphic design history, but you're still working in some sort of context. You're looking at a history of work and you're working within a culture. Uh, and that's very difficult to avoid. I like this part where he asks, um, without this knowledge, are they missing out on anything? Would they produce better or more meaningful work if they had it? And it's one of those things where, like, there's that fundamental idea of going to art school, right? Where it's like, you have to study the classics, and you have to know the rules in order to break the rules, right? Um, I don't. And that's where you gave us all this money. Yeah, I don't know that that's, like, necessarily true, but I do think you're better able to talk about your work and better able to understand the kind of framework in which you have to sell your work. Like, you always have to sell your work to somebody. Whatever you've created, you have this vocabulary in which to talk about it and describe it and how it's functioning. You're going to do a better job at sort of getting people on board, no matter what. So I think that would be the only thing that I would advise, is, like, what you may be missing is the larger picture. And whether you decide to sort of follow the rules, quote-unquote, that have been established by millennia of design you know, or not, it'll still help you talk about what you're creating and help you better understand the milieu in which you're creating it. It's funny the way you phrased it was way more articulate than what I was thinking in my head, which is that the <laughs> the, the way I use my graphic design knowledge now is really just to win arguments. Like, I don't know if it makes me, I don't, it's hard to say if it makes my work better or not, because I don't, I can't do it without whatever I know. But like, I feel like it mostly comes into use when I'm like in the midst of an argument about a design and then I can pull out some historical reference. And then but that's the point too, because as a designer, if you, if you're better able to talk about it, you're better able to make metaphors and like pull in similes that other people understand and can relate to, you're going to be miles ahead, you know? Yeah. I, I will say, I do think there is like, I've definitely felt limited by like thinking that there are rules. Um, and it's not that I was limited by knowledge. I was limited by actually believing that that was true. Um, and so I think there is that, like, if you really thought the modernists were totally right and everything they did, did was perfect, like, I'm sure that could be limiting. It's just more about realizing that that is one culture and there are many, and no one was actually ever right about anything. Just go live in um, Villa Savoie for a while and see how you like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, one thing I'll add is that I think your work is more meaningful if you bring more experience and knowledge and interest to it. And if that experience and knowledge and interest is of the history of graphic design specifically, great. If that experience and knowledge and interest is of something totally different, uh, I think there's just as much of an opportunity to bring that experience to your work and make it more interesting and deeper because of it. Uh, and, And sometimes, you know, particular artists bringing together you know, some history that people haven't really connected with graphic design before, with some other kind of practice before, and then their work is novel and interesting because of that new connection. Uh, So I don't think that, you know, ultimately, I feel like if people pursue the thing they're interested in, uh, they will make the best work they're capable of making. I, I think it's, I don't think you have to like eat your vegetables and go, you know, read some books about the history of X because you're supposed to know it, uh, necessarily to do the best kind of work. Yeah, and the thing that's what I think is really interesting is Stefan is act- asking specifically about like UI designers, right? And it's like 
I wouldn't say you necessarily have to study, let's say, classical graphic design to have, like, a really, like, interesting, innovative viewpoint. But, like, if you're interested in how people interact with, like, interfaces and products and stuff, you should be looking at a wide swath of items and a wide swath of, like, historical stories and things like that because that's what you really want to bring into it. You know, it's like if you're designing a system, you have to look at all these other systems to be able to understand how people interact with things. And, like, studying classical graphic design is very narrow for that, in my opinion. And it sounds totally cheeseball, but, uh, you know, my, my minor in school was bookbinding. And I feel like I learned a lot about designing user interfaces and other kinds of things by thinking about like how good of a design the book as an object is. Like it's something that took people forever to come up with, right? We had scrolls first. We had all of, all of different kinds of way of making manuscripts, you know, storing them and like retrieving them. Uh, and the invention of the book and like the object of the book and all the mechanics that make it up is like a it's a user experience. You know, I I feel gross using those words to describe it, but you can think about it in that light. And then I, I learned things from that, right? And to get back to our like flash website, you know, welcome to my website, click here to enter kind of page. Like the reason books have blank pages at the front and the back, well, it's partially a printing thing because you got to print pages at a certain number to get the right number of signatures. But it's also a thing because it's really jarring to just open the cover of a book and have the content right there. It feels wrong. You need a little bit of padding to like separate the world of the book from the world of the world, uh, which is just a, it's an important thing to learn. Yeah, man. Um, all right. So here's, here's the last question that I want to bring up. And uh, it actually was, came from a little thread on Twitter uh, that I want to kind of mention here. Uh, the question is, Designers make fun of each other for saying things like design can change the world. Do you think that's asking too much or can it? And then the follow-up, which came from Caleb, uh, is can design unchange the world? Capitalism, fossil fuels, global warming, housing crises, gentrification. In other words, uh, towards nature. I I think basically asking can we, all the change that has come of the industrial revolution and the sort of modernization of the world, uh, do we blame design for that? And then can design pick us away from that? And I want to strive as much as possible to have a somewhat serious conversation about this question because I imagine that maybe other people, when they saw this tweet, might have rolled their eyes a little bit, right? Uh, like the design can change the world thing. Is, is that cringeworthy, right? Well, I think we're old enough now to be a little jaded about what we do, right? So Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was born you, jaded. So, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but like, you know, when we initially got into this, I think... For all of us and for everybody that gets into this, there's a sliver of that notion of how powerful it is and how how glorious it can be, you know? And so I think we have to remember that, like, we were those people at one point that was like, yeah, design can change the world. Oh, yeah. I I have to remind myself that, like, the things that bother me the most are just things I used to do. That's all it is. Yeah, for sure. 100%. So so that kid that says design can change the world and I'm going to make a poster to do it, I'm only annoyed because I did the exact same thing when I was his age. But... Yeah. That kind of thing has happened. Like, it's not unheard of. Oh, yeah. That's why, that's why I tried to do it in the first place. Because you saw an example of it working, and you're like, oh, this is the greatest thing. I'm going to do exactly that. So, yeah, I mean, I think we agree there are examples, practical examples, where you can say, you know, design, graphic design, this visual language we work in, has had a measured effect on the course of history. And I think people like to gravitate around that, mostly because of insecurity, right? Uh, we, we don't want to think that the work we're doing is selfish and for ourselves because we just happen to like it. We want to think that what we're doing is going to have some greater impact on the world around us, and there's some comfort in that thought. Uh, and the reason I think it's eye-rolly, and maybe particularly eye-rolly right now, is because 
Uh, there's a lot of things wrong with the world, and most of them, the vast, vast, vast majority of them, are not addressed by anything that resembles design or graphic design. And so the idea that uh, you'd be insisting that this thing could change the world, it's like, yeah, sure. But when you say it a lot, it seems to imply that your main goal is to change the world. And if that is the case, maybe get a different job because that's not what this thing does primarily. This this thing mostly sells stuff to people. That That's what this whole industry is kind of built on. And uh, if you are going to try and pretend that uh, that's not what you're doing because you have some insecurity about your kind of your your legacy the footprint you leave behind uh, i don't think that hiding behind examples of design changing the world is a is a justifiable position well we're also using it every time that phrase gets used it's with a positive connotation or like the connotation that it's changing the world for the better uh like of course design changes the world like it happens all the time and it can be in any direction you want it to be right like it can change the world in that like uh advertising is a huge industry people are buying so much more stuff Look at Apple products. Like, yeah, it's changing the world. Like, what direction do you want to push it in? Apple's doing a great job of selling iPods or selling iPhones or whatever, right? Yeah, design is changing the world every day. Well, I think there's, like, an interesting part of of Caleb's question, that this idea of, like, the answer to all of these problems that design or the Industrial Revolution created is, like, returning to this idea of nature. And I think that is... I don't think that's possible, but I also think it's like putting a really small imagination on what technology actually could do and could achieve as far as like taking away a lot of human suffering or, you know, removing, you know, unpleasant work, you know, those types of things. And so I I think, I think the design, like, as you said, like can change the world for the best or for the worst. But I, I think if it, if it can and I think it can change the world for the better. I think like putting it in the framework of trying to return to this kind of natural, you know, quote unquote, natural way of living through the world, I think is a really small minded way to think of it. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, I think technology actually has a lot of capacity for good and for so much bad, but I don't think returning to nature is the answer. Yeah, and I'll go a step further and say that I don't think it's just small-minded. I think in, in a lot of places, that kind of approach is a little bit destructive to think that there was a time where things were better and now things are bad and we need to return to that time. Uh, like rolling back capitalism and burning of fossil fuels and global warming, like n- that's not only not possible, but there were such enormous problems for people before all those things happened that it's you can't even make the argument that it was you know net better back then necessarily. Um, the only thing I can maybe think about is if you could roll back and say, hey, maybe don't build the atomic bomb. That might just be better. Uh, <laughs> but that yeah. seems like an extreme example. Um, the thing I keep keep coming back to is that I think the other reason I kind of like, I don't know, get a little get a little jaded about this stuff is that in no example is design the motivating force, right? Design is a tool used by the motivating forces that are actually changing the world. And things like capitalism is a motivating tool that has had a profound impact on the world and it has used design as a you know very very excellent tool in order to execute its vision uh, across all of humankind uh, or as much of humankind as it's reached and so i think a lot of times you know the idea that we are making things to change the world we are but design is oftentimes not the one that's pointing that arrow right we're just we're just making the arrow fly straight and uh, hopefully hit its target but we don't get to choose what that target is in a lot of situations um, and you know, there you can make 
the case when you look at things like you know uh, Emily Pilton and you know uh, Architecture for Humanity and that and those kind of uh, or projects that specifically you know take design approach and bring it to some kind of issue of social good. That's an example of that kind of working. Um, but even there, you know, I think in a lot of situations, what they're basically doing is they're bringing the trappings of what capitalism has decided is a solution to people that previously couldn't afford it. And I would argue it's not necessarily solving the problem as much as it is continuing to proliferate whatever system is currently in power. Yeah, it's it's about pointing the money, the resources, the effort, like whatever you pointed at. I think design does a really good job of of executing. It's just it's really hard to uh, get yourself in the position where you're pointing those resources in whatever direction, right? It's not always for good, whatever that means. Yeah, I mean, perfect example is like all of marketing. Obviously, all of advertising is trying to get you to basically feel a need for something you don't otherwise have a need for, uh, so you spend your money on it. And, you know, in the world of product design and, you know, UX and stuff like that, we have all these dark patterns that, you know, trick you into tapping on that button that gives location access to the app so they can track all the stuff about you and have all this information and, you know, turn you into a little like data point on their graph. Uh, There's all kinds of examples of people using design to make the world worse because that's the sort of motivating, the motivation of the people that are employing those designers. Uh, And I think it's a different conversation for a different day as to whether or not it is ethical to do your job of sharpening that arrow and making it fly straight when you know the target is one that you don't politically agree with. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think design can change the world. When I hear people talking about it, I feel like it's always in this like really close-minded way of just basically you're trying to justify that your career is good, like you are some sort of angel for doing what you do. And that's just almost never the case yeah. uh, in, in this particular industry. And so that's why I cringe when I see it, because it's like you just want to feel safe and you want to feel like what you're doing is okay and uh i think hiding behind the fact that we're in a industry that has impact and honestly every industry does right like there's there's no real industry that has no impact on the world uh it's not really a justification so i don't know i do think it's important like yeah i mean we're jaded we're more aware of the world now we're more experienced so in many ways we know our limitations we know that most of the work that we do is for advertising and you know applications that ultimately make very little effect on the world so it's really easy to feel disillusioned but i think we have to kind of cultivate that like small seed of idealism that like you know the teenage versions of ourselves knew and recognized in the world like we have to kind of take care of that little part of ourselves you know and like maybe it's in this avenue of like making sure we maintain our ethics you know and trying to find value in the world and what we do and what we put out and maybe it's more just about making more conscious decisions and saying no to projects that violate our personal ethics and you know approaching things on that level than you know clutching dangerously to this notion that we had of you know design as this beautiful truth that doesn't exist Yeah, one thing I like to do is take the lessons you learn from the, you know, less altruistic side of design and apply them to problems where that can be useful, right? Like a lot of our clients are e-commerce clients. We make websites to sell t-shirts and boots to people that already have enough t-shirts and boots. But uh, the things you learn from spending a bunch of time and money to kind of optimize those interactions you can also apply to getting people to donate to a nonprofit uh, or to like read this page explaining the mission of this particular company or do something that 
is a good thing in the world. And I always like when I can apply one of those uh, lessons learned in a system which I don't necessarily love, like capitalism, and apply that to a system which I do love, where it's like, yeah, all right, I'm gonna, I know what, what makes people click on this button and read this thing and take this action. I'm not going to make them do that in a good way. Yeah. I feel like I've been thinking about it a lot lately because, like, I mean, I worked on a very big project that was trying to save the world, and I was a designer. <laughs> um, and it, to crushing defeat. Yeah. And... Um, And I think throughout it, I knew that it didn't rest solely on me and it didn't rest solely on my team, but I also knew that the, you know, the stakes are very high. So it was, you know, our responsibility to be really good at what we did. And like, I'm not working on politics right now, but I'm planning on it for 2020. Um, But I'm reading this like marketing book right now and it's, I went on a date the other day and this guy made fun of me for reading a pop psychology book, but I was like, whatever, I don't care. (laughs) Um, but I've been like reading this marketing book, like through the lens of like political persuasion. And so like, like, as you said, Andy, like kind of taking these not evil methods, but like just methods of persuasion and methods of, you know, getting people to do things. And, you know, if you, you can take those kind of those tactics and you can apply it to something like getting people to vote or getting people to, you know, think or be excited about somebody and I think that can change the world because it certainly did six months ago so yeah um yeah there's a lot of layers <laughs> to that exactly question. yeah you just kind of have to funnel it into something that like aligns with your values and your ethics and what you want to see in the world Exactly. To to Caleb's question, I think if you really want to unchange the world in the ways in which you're describing, the the thing you need to do is figure out how to change the motivations, or at least work for people that have different motivations. Uh, because I don't think that design is going to turn anything around. Uh, design may help us do things more efficiently and quickly once we do get things turned around. Uh, here's hoping. But but yeah, I think it's important to realize in most contexts. Uh, design is a tool it is a means not a not a mission exactly so we don't have a like last thoughts really because this was a Q&A but uh, Lola Kara do you have anything you'd like to promote no I don't think so <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to sell anything to anyone at this moment <laughs> there you go exactly <laughs> hey thank you both this was great I thought this was a great episode yeah thank you so much this thanks fun. guys thanks Matt and yeah, Andy thanks for having us been working file thanks for listening this week check out our brand new website at workingfile.co featuring transcripts of the entire backlog of episodes and once again thank you to xyz type for sponsoring those transcripts we are very grateful to you ben and jesse don't forget email poster at xyz and get a free poster nothing to lose